Welcome to The Limba, a podcast about the Presidential Medal of Freedom, those who've been awarded it, those who should be awarded it, and sometimes those who shouldn't have. I'm Brian Tuft. I'm Clay Russell. And our lovely co-host, Christine Sear, is not with us. Um, she very suspiciously canceled on us at the last minute, which, given the escalating situation with Russia, makes me wonder, Clay, how well did we really know our friend? I don't know, and I wonder if got to catch a flight to Miami is, you know, a euphemism for something else. Like, maybe she's on a military plane, you know, going to a... I don't know. Is Christine more... Do you think of her more as Russian or Ukrainian? I would definitely say that she's more Russian. Um, Mm -hmm. But I could also see that she's, like, you know, in... She's flying to Miami, but they're going somewhere more rural in Florida, you know, like, to hunt poor people or something. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like in the swamps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right. Yeah. Her in the her in the Everglades on one of those glass bottom boats. <laughs> <laughs> Hunting people who've defaulted on their loans in a glass bottom boat. Yes. <laughs> why why does it need to be a glass bottom? Don't ask. <laughs> um but I'm proud of us for persevering without her because I really feel like we're pioneers. Uh the idea that there's two white men hosting a podcast together. It's just yeah. it's so rare. You don't see it enough. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, you know, Christine was like the glue of the podcast. So we'll we'll see how we do on our own, you know? Maybe by the end of this, we're going to be in a corner crying. I don't know. I'm already looking for the emergency exits. <laughs> uh, this week, while we did not get any news on the imminent Biden medal picks, uh, we did get some exciting news from the White House just this morning. Uh, President Biden made history, putting forth Katanji Brown-Jackson as his Supreme Court pick to replace retiring Justice Stephen Breyer. Judge Jackson, a 51-year-old mother of two, originally from, ironically enough, Miami, Florida, would be only the third black justice to serve on the bench and the first black woman to do so. Uh, She would also be the first justice appointed to have served as a public defender, and she has been through this process before. Three times, in fact, most recently in April of 2021 for her current seat on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which she was approved on a, I know I say it's dead every week, but mm. she was approved on a bipartisan majority vote. Mm. I know that there is a public sentiment out there that uh, people think that that it shouldn't just only be an African-American woman that is nominated. And I understand that you want it to be the most qualified person. But just looking at her credentials, she is very qualified for the seat. And frankly, I think that the Supreme Court still doesn't necessarily represent a cross-section of America and the population that's out there. And I think that having the first African-American justice will... Uh, take a step in the right direction toward that. And also, this will be the the most amount of women on the Supreme Court in the history of the United States if she is confirmed. I mean, she's only one of seven people who is not a white man to be put forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And three of them are still serving. One of them is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, Or four of them are still still serving, uh, because it's uh, Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, to me, it's... Like, as much as I do think the optics were bad, like, I think that um, the idea that Biden came out and said it will be and not just like, you know, he feel like he didn't just talk about the idea of reassessing um, who is, you know, on the bench and who's given that opportunity to kind of um, change the face of the Supreme Court to match our country at large. I think, you know, but obviously it was... uh, 
the summer of 2020. I mean, at that point, uh, the optics that we were focusing on were not Biden's. But I think in hindsight, that was a little bit of a foot in the mouth moment. Um, I mean, it was a campaign promise. And it was uh, something that I think absolutely courted African-American voters to his side. So I think that overall, he would still say that it was worth it to make that statement. But you are right. It it did him no favors uh, in terms of trying to... I don't know. We've spoken about this in past shows about the impartiality of the Supreme Court and how there's this still this uh, almost glazed over pie in the sky viewpoint that the Supreme Court is not a partisan body. Uh, and so, yeah, it did him no favors in that sense. But I also think that that this candidate, uh, without looking at all the bullshit and the politics and everything like that, is a highly qualified judge that deserves to be on the Supreme Court. Um, well, it's funny because when I did my research uh, this morning just to kind of get all of my facts straight, um, because I did not set an alarm this morning, uh, listeners, and I God slept bless. through the announcement, I woke up and thought the biggest news was that uh, the wordle of the day had two double letters in it and was stressed out about that and then found out that there was Supreme Court news. Right. Um, nothing else happened this week either. So. <laughs> nope. That was yeah. it. I was like, what? Not at all. Yep. <laughs> double well. consonant, double vowel. Christine will be back with us next week. This has been a great <laughs> show, Brian. Great. Good talking to you. Um, the political stuff is just hilarious because that co- that clip of uh, Ted Cruz, um, who, you know, is also from Texas. I believe he is your uncle. Um, <laughs> Are you saying that my <laughs> uncle is a Zodiac killer, Brian? <laughs> yes, I do. That does track. Okay. Um, great. <laughs> But, um, you know, where he was like, I think it's racist that only black women were put forward for this for this job um, to me is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to wait for my grandfather clock to stop making noise. Okay. (laughs) Well, at least it's not the Zodiac killer, unlike my grandfather. (laughs) I mean, I guess it would be uh, time wise, it would have to be your grandfather. Um, And then, of course, my uh, other favorite Republican senator, uh, Lindsey Graham, who was one of the people who voted for her for the uh, D.C. Circuit Court, um, has now said that this is a giant win for the leftist liberals. And I have to say, as somebody who self-identifies as a leftist liberal, I don't feel like I had a big win today. So I want to I want Lindsey Graham to show me where the win was. It also, big picture, will make no difference in terms of the balance of the Supreme Court. No. So, yeah, I I think that there is, and this inevitably happens with every single president, that people will tend to pile on to Joe Biden. Uh, obviously, there is a very rough period in his presidency right now, whether it is uh, the Ukraine situation, whether it is inflation, whether it's Afghanistan. I think that people should take a big step back and uh, realize that if we did have a second Trump uh, term, that just it, just look at the Ukraine alone and how he would have handled that. Uh, I think that that Vladimir Putin would have absolutely been emboldened if uh, Donald Trump was his biggest cheerleader during all of this. So I think that everyone kind of needs to take a step back and take a deep breath and realize that uh, despite all the issues happening in the country right now, that we are a lot better than we would have been. Well, the idea of a, like, let's think about if we had a second Trump term, 
is not usually a, a party game that I would invite others to play. <laughs> right. I will say my belief is that we would not have a, we would not have the Omicron wave hit the United States the way that it did because I feel like if Trump got the victory lap of getting those vaccines made that every, like they'd be serving them at 7-Eleven. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody would have them. Um and I think to me the um the break between um, Trump's administration and Biden's administration and the change of power and the the election was rigged and stolen and all of that, um, I think really kind of created more distrust. Um, and that was something that I thought about a lot over Christmas was I was like, okay, if Donald Trump was still president, would this be happening? And it's the first time I've ever thought maybe things would be better if Donald Trump was still president, um, which truly my therapist and I were on the phone a lot over Christmas. Well, let's let's see what happens by the end of Biden's first term in terms of Supreme Court vacancies, because, uh, you know, we already have a super majority in conservatives. But if it was, you know, seven out of the nine justices were hard right, then uh, it would be a very different country. I will say um, I do want to commend uh, Justice Breyer because he did make sure that when he announced his retirement, he said that as long as his seat has been filled, he will be uh, retiring at the end of the term. If they cannot come to a consensus about his replacement, he will not be stepping down. And I was like, you know what? That's you read the room, Justice mm-hmm. Breyer. You read the room. Yeah, I think that he he finally admitted that uh that the Supreme Court is officially a politicized body right now. Something that I didn't mention in a previous show that is important to keep in mind that I haven't necessarily heard reported that much is that when the Supreme Court makes a ruling, they usually do take about six months to write their dissents, uh, write their opinion pieces, things like that. So Justice Stephen Breyer knows what the ruling is on Roe versus Wade, if it's going to be overturned or not. Justice Stephen Breyer knows the ruling on carrying an assault rifle onto a New York City subway. So these decisions have been made. He knows what they are. And unfortunately, the fact that he decided to uh, face facts and retire right now scares me a little bit about what he knows is going to be coming down the pipeline in 2022. Well, thank you so much for that, Clay. Um, not only have you ruined my weekend, you've mm-hmm. ruined the weekend of all of our listeners. Um, is there anything else you'd like to apologize for? <laughs> you know, Brian, there actually is. There actually is. In last week's show, we uh, stated that Billie Jean King was introduced in the Super Bowl as the only female athlete to be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I... Uh, Initially thought with my gut that Babe Dickinson Zaharis was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I decided to do a quick Google search and realized that this was not the case. And I apologized for this oversight. I now realize, and this is going to be the first time that we do this on the show, I was telling Brian and Christine that this may be more rare than a with distinction medal given out. I have an apology for an apology. Not only did Donald Trump award one, but two medals to female athletes. One was Clay, the how aforementioned. How would we have missed that? 
Funny enough, Brian, uh, actually, there was a bit of a story to this. Both of these medals were handed out in Donald Trump's last class, the 2021 class. Both ceremonies took place the morning of January 7th, 2021. Uh, For some reason, the press wasn't invited in that day. I don't know why. Uh, What was what was going on in Washington then? Maybe they were invited and there was just so much traffic from the investigation of the January 6th insurrection that the press couldn't get into the White House. Right. It's a little tough <laughs> to uh, to cover a Medal of Freedom ceremony whenever the city is under martial law. So, yes, uh, there are no uh, photographs that I know of of the medal ceremony. It was uh, two female golfers that were awarded. This was in the same class as Devin Nunez and Jim Jordan as well. Uh, it was Annika Sorenstam, the Swedish professional golfer who is alive and uh, who I mentioned earlier that I trusted with my gut and ruled against that. I apologize to my gut. The Babe Dickerson Zaharis was awarded the medal. She has been dead for over 60 years, so I am sorry for the oversight. This is my apology to an apology. I love, like, somebody in the White House. Uh, I, I have the book, uh, the photographer who worked for Reagan and Obama, like whoever mm-hmm. Trump's version of that is, has to have had, like there has to be photos of this. And I would just, I'd love to see what the vibe is like in the photos. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, not, I won't spoil it, but like later on in my medal of the week, I, while I was kind of um, looking for a way to approach this, I realized that um, two people involved were actually given the medal on the same day. And I thought about like what the, uh, you know, kind of green room and reception afterward was like with, uh, such illustrious people. I cannot imagine, um, what that day must've been like. Let me go down the list. We've spoken about this before that you can kind of get a president's personality based on their medal picks for the morning after the January 6th insurrection. Donald Trump awarded five medals. Three of the five were for professional golfers with Annika Sorenstam, Gary Player, and Babe Dickerson Zaharis. And two of them were for hard-right Republicans who steadfastly stood by the president, Devin Nunez and Jim Jordan. That was it. That was the morning after the insurrection. You know that somewhere in the world that morning, Tiger Woods was like, thank God I took it earlier. A hundred percent. Yeah. Also, could you imagine if Dolly Parton was like, you know what? He's still the president of the United States. I should I should show up and accept the award if she actually was there that morning. Just the look on her face. Because she's so high profile that we would already have the photo. So, I mean, like, obviously, I'm glad for Dolly's rep. But at the same time, like. What could have been? Yeah. Well, I think that unlike me, Dolly Parton uh, trusted her gut on declining that medal and uh, paid off in spades by not being there the morning after the one of the greatest insurrections in the United States history. Well, when we get back, um, Clay will be giving us a profile on Marian Anderson. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Limbaugh Podcast. Stick around. Memorial turns 100 years old this May. 
we obviously know the Lincoln Memorial for the large public events that have happened there. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech in the Civil Rights March. Uh, several concerts, several gatherings that have happened throughout the, the last century there. What a lot of people don't realize is that when the memorial opened in 1922, what a different world that the United States was, even compared to when President Abraham Lincoln was alive. 1922 was the height of the Jim Crow era in the United States. In fact, the Lincoln Memorial was one of the very few non-Confederate memorials that was erected that decade. Even at the ceremony for the opening of the Lincoln Memorial on the steps, the guests of honor for the opening were Confederate soldiers. They were on the stage with the, the featured speakers that were there. Uh, the uh, people that were not invited to the ceremony were African-Americans. The very few that were invited were actually seated off the stage and guarded by United States Marines, just to show uh, the country had not progressed since the Emancipation Proclamation. In fact, there was only one African-American speaker that was invited for the opening. It was the Tuskegee Institute president, Dr. Robert Rusa Morton. And even he was not able to sit on stage with the rest of the speakers. He had to come up from the segregated and, again, guarded by U.S. Marines section to be able to speak. Uh, African-Americans in general were not welcome at the Lincoln Memorial, despite what we know of Lincoln now and what his stature is among civil rights and among freedom in the United States. The Lincoln Memorial was very much not a place for African-Americans to, to congregate. In fact, there was really nowhere publicly that, that uh, the government set aside for African-Americans to gather especially in that Jim Crow era. While this was going on in 1922, a young singer named Marian Anderson was starting to uh, give her first tours and first musical performances around the United States. She uh, was born and raised in Philadelphia, and she remembers that when she boarded her first train for her tour, as soon as they got to the South, every African-American was asked to get out of the train and enter a train car that literally had the words Jim Crow painted on the side of it. And she realized just, you know, how different the Southern United States especially were for African-Americans at that time. She said that she remembered that everyone on the train did not look sad. They did not look angry. She remembers that everyone looked embarrassed, embarrassed by the situation that they had. This profile on Marian Anderson, I think that that if you take a step back, there are similarities between her and previous metal profile uh, person that we had, Van Cliburn, in that both of their careers were uh, summarized in a very high profile and monumental way that was almost a performance that was outside of their expertise. They, they were in the middle of something that... Uh, wasn't necessarily something under their control, but they were definitely a symbol of what it was in that place. Even though that she was a figure for civil rights pioneers uh, and the event that, that she is famous for performing at the Lincoln Memorial, 
She is not of the civil rights era. This is a person that was born in the 1800s. All four of her grandparents were slaves. And she's almost a bridge between that Jim Crow era and the civil rights group uh, and how that kind of tied together in a way. Marian Anderson was born, as I said, in Philadelphia in 1897. Uh, Her mother was a homemaker and her father was a day laborer. And she started to learn about music through the church, which was, uh, as I said, how many African-Americans weren't allowed in many uh, areas of society. The black church was one of the areas where uh, there was a sense of community in there. Tragedy hit her when she was 12 years old, when her father was killed in an accident on a work site. And because of this, at the time, there were very few uh, social programs for the African-American community. And so she actually had to drop out of school at 12 years old to uh, get a job cleaning houses to support her mother and her family. Uh, This is, again, kind of differentiating her from Van Cliburn and having that background of, uh, you know, going to Juilliard and and going to the best schools. This is someone who absolutely struggled at every point in her life. Uh, She wasn't able to even graduate from high school until she was 24 years old. In fact, just to, to give another parallel to Van Cliburn, she wasn't even allowed to perform at the Metropolitan Opera until she was 60 years old. Most people's debuts are in their 20s, with her just based purely on her race. She had to wait until she was 60 years old to perform there. While she started to get a name for herself through the concerts that she would perform, uh, again, not going to school, she had to work, uh, she would eventually make a name for herself from her raw talent and uh, started to get a bit of a reputation and started to have articles written about her. Uh, She was starting to perform to uh, non-African-American audiences that began to know her, and she was beginning to be invited for these tours that were going on. And so at the time, she felt that it was uh, right to see if she could get a bit more formal training with her music, Uh, especially whenever you are singing opera and traditional songs. A lot of those are in German and Italian dialects. And and if you don't understand what what is being sung, uh, you can't necessarily put uh, an emotional imprint on on the songs that you're singing. So uh, she decided to apply to the Philadelphia Academy of Music. And uh, she said that she walked into the area and, and thought that it was time to, to see if, if uh, things had progressed enough where an African-American would be able to study at the academy. And she handed her application into the woman at the desk. And uh, the woman took the application and threw it in the garbage and said that colored people are not allowed to study there. Marian Anderson later said that the thing that affected her the most about that wasn't uh, that she was rejected, but that the woman who threw away her her application was her own age, and that that stuck with her forever. Her management at the time tried to brush this aside a little bit and told her, you know, uh, to learn German and Italian songs— you could always go to Germany and go to Italy. 
And Marian Anderson kind of brushed that aside and said, no, I want to, I want to stay with my community. I want to do this, uh, on my own way. And so instead of, you know, being schooled, she did decide to start touring around the United States, uh, got to, uh, again, write in these very segregated systems, but she did get to be able to perform across the United States while this is going on kind of an interesting and incredible life of what she saw of being able to see all of these race rights that were starting to happen around the United States. And she was in Chicago during the 1919 race riot. She was around during the Tulsa race riot of 1921. People forget that the Tulsa race riot happened one year before the Lincoln Memorial opened. Uh, just really while she was trying to make a living as an artist, witness some of the deadliest terrorist attacks in the United States of the 20th century. This all culminated in being well-known enough that she was the first African-American artist to be signed to RCA Records. And with that came uh, a large show that was booked at uh, the brand-new music venue in New York City called Town Hall. It opened in 1920, uh, 1924. And she performed the concert, and it was her highest-profile gig to date, and the New York press absolutely destroyed her. The reason why is because they said that she sang with the wrong emphasis on the words and why wasn't she educated enough to be able to understand the songs and basically said this is a a dumb African-American that doesn't understand the songs that she's singing. At this point, she snapped and said, you know what? Maybe it is better if I uh, leave the United States and tour Europe for a little bit. So she basically cleaned out her bank account and hopped on a ship and went to Europe. And instead of going to a music institution in the United States, learned these songs by actually being in Germany, being in Italy, being in London, being in Paris. And while she was learning all of these things and meeting all of these musicians, uh, became a superstar over there and was very successful. Uh, She became very wealthy. She made the equivalent today of $3.5 million while she was over there. Uh, While in the United States, you would not be able to make a living and that people would slam you uh, for, for not being able to get into schools. But as all of this was going on, And she was able to escape the segregation of the United States. She happened to be in Germany and Austria when the Nazi party came to power. And she realized that, again, she was in a situation where she was not able to uh, make a living because that culture had turned against her and turned against non-Aryan people. One of her very last concerts was after the Archbishop of Austria uh, heard her sing and invited her to the Austria Salzburg Festival in 1935. Uh, She arrived there and realized that uh, because the Nazi party had taken control of Austria and taken control of Salzburg, that she wasn't even listed on the program for the evening and barely anyone saw her. Uh, the program and the performance was well received, but she very quickly realized, Hey, you know, this is, uh, I need to get out of here cause I'm, I'm in danger. So she fled Austrian and went back to the United States. Uh, this is the point where 
uh, Christine would would freak out. So Brian, I I hope that you're able to to stay in her place with this. She wasn't the only artist from the Salzburg Festival to to flee after that performance. The winners of the choral competition, the Von Trapps. There you go. <laughs> As soon as you said Salzburg, I was like, oh, man, she was singing with uh, Maria and the children. (laughs) You're exactly right. So this was the exact same performance that was portrayed in The Sound of Music. This is the one that Marian Anderson sung at and realized, hey, I got to get out of here. I mean, I would have preferred if The Sound of Music ended with her hiking with Captain Von Trapp and Maria and the children (laughs) and like maybe her manager. (laughs) Right. And just like everybody's just super cool, like her, like her somehow like out sopranoing Julie Andrews on climb every mountain as they like. <laughs> <laughs> the father falls in love with Marian Anderson instead of her. <laughs> like history has changed. I'm into it. Sorry, Christine, you missed out on that one. Uh, I will say, Brian, I apologize, but again, I did a very careful research to see any ties between Taylor Swift and Marian Anderson, and I'm sorry to report that, uh, that there are none. I'm hoping that Taylor listens to the podcast and goes back and writes these wrongs. So, yes, Marian Anderson returns to the United States. She is uh, wealthy. She is, is famous and uh, continues to tour but has to deal with a lot of the same segregation. This all culminated uh, in 1939 when she was invited to sing a concert and the venue that they put aside. At the time in Washington, D.C., there were only, you know, small music halls and then uh, these large stadiums. But someone uh, who was large enough to, let's say, play a Radio City music hall or something that size, there wasn't a venue like that existed except for one, which was Constitution Hall. Uh, Constitution Hall was owned and operated by the Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, which was a social group based on ancestors of soldiers from the American Revolution. Uh, Previous and current members are Laura Bush, Rosalind Carter, Susan B. Anthony, and one Eleanor Roosevelt. And for the most part, that group, and we are, again, forbidden to, to even discuss this in schools nowadays, is that a lot of that group was founded on white supremacy. And so after Marian Anderson was uh, booked to perform at Constitution Hall, the Daughters of the American Re- Revolution stepped in and canceled her performance. Uh, this became big news and... Uh, very publicly, Eleanor Roosevelt, the member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, publicly resigned from the organization. At this point, I would like to do a Wikipedia face-off. Uh, this is going to be a competition of one with Brian. Oh, no. So, Brian, we have the letter here of Eleanor Roosevelt's resignation on February 26th, 1939. I'd like in the breeziest and bitchiest tone that you can muster to to read the letter for us. Oh, so I'll use my regular voice. Yes. Uh, Dated February 26th, 1939. My dear Mrs. Henry M. Robert Jr., I am afraid that I have never been a very useful member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, so I know it will make very little difference to you whether I resign or whether I continue to be a member of your organization. However, as I am in complete disagreement with this attitude taken in refusing Constitution Hall to a great artist, you have set an example which seems to me unfortunate, 
and I feel obliged to send in my resignation. You had an opportunity to lead in an enlightened way, and it seems to me that your organization has failed. I realize that many people will agree will not agree with me, but feeling as I do, this seems to be the only proper procedure to follow. Very sincerely yours, Eleanor Roosevelt. And the winner of the competition is Brian Tuft. You know, Brian, you killed it. Thank you so much. This, uh, you really picked something in my wheelhouse. The bitchy resignation letter? Yeah, I can't sing um, opera in Italian either, but I can send a bitchy letter. <laughs> <laughs> Same with Eleanor, you know? I think, uh, I think she would have been a fan of the show. So uh, Marian Anderson is kicked out of Constitution Hall There's a big uproar, and so they need to find an alternate venue. And again, the Lincoln Memorial had never hosted a concert. It had never hosted an event, anything like that, since it was opened in 1922. They thought nothing of this being this alternate venue. Uh, African-Americans, again, did not identify with the Lincoln Memorial and felt that they were not welcome there. So there was no symbolism of having Marian Anderson perform there. They just thought it would be this this random thing. Uh, Marian Anderson and her team arrived for the concert in D.C., and no hotel would even let them stay there. Uh, Washington, D.C. at the time was very much still uh, considered a a southern and segregated city. Uh, And so they arrived at the concert. It was on Easter Day, 1939. The uh, police estimated that about 5,000 to 50,000 people would show up for the event. Uh, It turned out that it was 75,000 people in an integrated audience, which was a big deal at the time in the 1930s. An estimated one million people listened to it on the radio. Uh, it was a gigantic deal. And uh, I would like to share with Brian uh, the actual video of the performance. And I hope that, that people at home are able to watch this as well. It's in the Library of Congress. And the thing that really affects me is obviously the singing is is beautiful uh, with this. It's it's my country, tis of thee. Again, this was a song choice that wasn't necessarily symbolic at the time, but they felt that hey, we're you know in Washington, so we might as well sing a patriotic song. Uh, and the thing that sticks with me and gives me chills is right before she does start to sing, and she looks out at 75,000 integrated people, and you just see this look on her face of, holy shit, like, this isn't, this is something new here. And I think that that something that's important to think about is that this was the first time that African Americans had a public place that they could identify with and call their own and feel comfortable at. And it's just a, it's a really beautiful moment. And so you see that when she looks out over the crowd, it's almost like she's overcome and she closes her eyes and her eyes stay closed the rest of the performance.
it's just an incredible moment when you when you step back and and watch this. And again, this was the first iconic moment for African Americans uh, to be able to identify with with something that the the government made, especially related to uh, their own emancipation that happened all those years ago. Uh, while this is going on, again. One million people listen to that across the nation, including in Atlanta, a 10-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. listened to the radio broadcast and uh, thought to himself, it would be pretty cool if one day I was able to, to do something there. So that was the moment that, that Martin Luther King came up with the idea and started to think about uh, this area as a place for a very public and visible monument to the American promise that had not yet been achieved from there. Uh, something else that that was important at the time is that the image of Marian Anderson, this very regal person, was very different from how African Americans were depicted in the media at the time. Uh, due to white supremacy, the entire nature of that argument is that African Americans are not as smart as as white people, and that they're basically uh, to be laughed at and to be looked at as either clowns or sex objects. Uh, and this was the first time that a African American person uh, appeared to be uh, beautiful and to be regal. And it was this massive uh, event that happened in terms of the image of the African American community in the United States. Uh, one thing to point out is the uh, lyrics of the song that she sang, how uh, during the performance, she actually changed the lyrics. The song is my country tis of the sweet land of Liberty of the I sing. And she changed it to sweet land of Liberty of the we sing. It's almost this some symbolic moment where wow. she almost turned this song into, you know, the basically the start of civil rights. And at the time, uh, this was, again, before the civil rights movement, when people were, you know, arguing to not be in the back of buses and to, uh, you know, be able to get into schools. This was a time of, you know, being tortured and lynched. You're. Your concern wasn't necessarily uh, segregation. Your concern was not being murdered. And so this was an important, an important turning point for uh, civil rights at that time. This would almost be one of the, the starting moments of that as well. Uh, after the performance, she uh, became an even greater celebrity and became this, this figure for African Americans uh, as this point of aspiration. But still, because it was the 1930s and 1940s, that racism uh, still existed. Uh, after that performance, she and her husband uh, wanted to buy a house in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, it was this 100-acre uh, housing division that was out there. And the housing agent would not allow them to buy a house because the agent said that if they moved in, they would bring down the value of the entire neighborhood. And so because she was so wealthy, she said, oh, that's OK. I'll just buy the entire neighborhood <laughs> and bought A every single move. house yeah, <laughs> in Danbury, Connecticut and stayed there uh, for the rest of her, her days, 100 acres that she used almost as, as farmland when she wasn't on tour. And 
Yeah, from there, that is when the civil rights movement started to take off. And she continued to tour and do shows, something that she was known for at the time. And this is where that generation of uh, people born in the 1800s and people in the 1950s and 60s started to kind of clash against each other is that she would play for these segregated audiences whenever she would do shows. She was noted for when she would take the stage at these concerts that she would bow to the African-American section but would not acknowledge the, the white section of the, the theaters that she played. When civil rights did start to take off, the younger generation started to really chafe against the fact that she was still agreeing to play to segregated crowds. And in the 1950s, the NAACP actually picketed one of her shows, uh, which deeply hurt her. But she did kind of understand that times were starting to change and she no longer would agree to play to segregated audiences going forward at that point. And, you know, frankly lost a whole lot of business deals from doing that. But she uh, really identified with that younger generation. It was years later when a young Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, who idolized her approached her uh, almost as as a little peace offering, and Marian Anderson uh, started to work directly with the NAACP, and she actually sang all those years later at Lincoln Memorial at the "I Have a Dream" speech. Wow. Yeah, a really a really cool circular uh, story that she has there, and. Uh, from that point on, she was pretty much a, a symbol and a this incredible figure for African-Americans in the United States. Uh, Aretha Franklin would sing concerts to her, and uh, she died, despite being born in 1897, lived to the age of 96, and died in 1993. Wow. So a pretty incredible life. When you uh, gave her date of birth, I like did the math to like see how old she would have been when um, Kennedy... Got to give out his uh, first and only um, round of medals. And I was mm-hmm. like, uh, 66, 67 feels a little old for that time. Um, you know, like mm-hmm. this is a lot about um, the idea of like what services and what uh, equality was not afforded to her. Um, what is, um, I'm so sorry. Uh, what By the is... way, Brian is muting uh, <clears throat> around his dog, like his dog is going to politely stop barking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the dog is very excited about the profile, apparently. Uh, but I was, you know, like, I don't know. Is uh, So to me, the idea that um, she had made it well into the 1990s is um, impressive and exciting. Incredible, yeah, yeah. And at this time, you know, there was... Uh, very little medical care and things like that. And the the fact that she was able to live to that age and experience that much to be born in an era before radio, even all four grandparents being slaves and living to the Clinton administration is, is a pretty incredible thing. I have to say, um, I know the, uh, the format and I feel like regular listeners do as well is that we try to figure out like who this person would be today and I feel like it would be impossible to kind of, or for me, in my uh, thinking about this, has been impossible to kind of come up with someone who I think is around currently. But a lot of this um, profile remind me a lot of uh, the actress Hattie McDaniel. 
um, who mm. was uh, who's most widely known uh, for her performance in Gone with the Wind. But uh, in terms of like somebody who was born in the late 1800s, uh, struggled uh, due to just flat out, not even institutional racism, just, I mean, uh, full-throated racism um, and was able and to violence, find success. Yeah. And then essentially to keep any success going, uh, kind of continued to play by the rules of the day. Um, and then was also um, criticized by the NAACP and, you know, was kind of uh, pointed out as like an example of what not to do. Um, it just, it reminded me a lot of that where, you know, you're essentially trying to find a way to play in the rules of the day and, you know, you're not able to really find the success that you're so deserved, but you're also not able to make any friends along the way because the people who are holding you down don't want you to be successful. And then the people who feel that you're not the newer generation exactly uh, feels that you're holding them back. Um, So to me, there were a lot of times during that where I was like, Oh, where have I heard this before? And if anyone does want to kind of see more specifics, uh, Karina Longworth does this incredible podcast called you must remember this. And uh, there is a uh, season about um, a song of the South, but there's one episode that I think is about an hour. uh, That's just about Hattie McDaniel and her career. And to me, it was like something where I, as you know, a movie that's been buried. I had no idea that she was even in Song of the South, um, mm-hmm. the most controversial Disney movie of all time. Uh, mm-hmm. But it... Um, Which uh, has disappeared from the Disney Channel. You you can't it, find it. You cannot get it on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yeah. Soon you'll be able to get uh, Daredevil and uh, The Punisher, <laughs> but you will not be able to get Song of the South. Not coming to Disney+. Plus <laughs> Ever, probably. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that was an incredible profile about somebody who I had heard about, but I did not know a lot about. Yeah, it's, and you're absolutely right. I don't know if there's anyone to compare to nowadays. I don't think there was anyone really to compare her to back then as well, because no one lived to the age of 96. Uh, Maybe in terms of just that cross-generational thing, especially with uh, the West Side Story remake, I was thinking Rita Moreno in that... uh, the way that that Latin Americans were viewed back in the 1950s and how uh, she was able to see that that culture change from then until today could be someone like that. But again, she never had that that international moment of a controversy that kind of created this moment that pushed uh, pushed culture further in terms of, uh, again, reaching that American dream. So. Yeah, you're you're spot on. I, I find it tough to find someone to even compare Marian Anderson to as well. No, yeah, I think she's uh, without comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I know we said this um, during the uh, Van Clyborne episode, and I feel bad that, um, not like bad for the listener or bad for you, but bad for me and Christine that you pick somebody who we keep referencing. But um, this is so ripe for a biopic. Like, I don't understand how there isn't some like big splashy... Um, and I know, like, you know, racism still looms very large in Hollywood, and it is very hard to get movies about black people, especially black historical figures, who are not, like, slaves or Martin Luther King uh, made. But to me, like, this story is so juicy. It has so many, like, think of the stunt casting for your Eleanor Roosevelt, for your Martin Luther King, for your mm-hmm. uh, Van, Von Trapps. Like, I mean, it's just, there's so much here and it's such an interesting story and it's a story so worth telling that to me, like, it's shocking that it's not out there. Yeah. And it would definitely be a, uh, an epic 
moment for that as well. Uh, I do have a suggestion, though, for Marian Anderson. You ready? I'm ready. Halle Berry. I mean, absolutely. But I, 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 I'm struggling to figure out who else I think it is. But the short haircut, there's just somebody who she's reminding me of so vividly. And I cannot quite put my finger on it. But I'm all about a Holly Berry joint. More work for Holly yeah. Berry. I think that she would crush it. And she's like at that right age where she would be able to give the gravitas of that. And to me, the idea that Holly Berry this year, for those of you who don't know, directed a movie about MMA fighting, like, let her direct this. (laughs) Okay, Holly Berry has given us so much, she deserves better. Let her direct this movie that is worth her stature. There's a great photo here of of her singing with a young Leonard Bernstein as well, who Leonard Bernstein is about to get a Bradley Cooper biopic, but she doesn't have one. So, yeah, let's write this wrong, Hollywood, okay? And please do not put Bradley Cooper in this biopic. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really glad that, that I was able to do this profile. She, if you look at the Wikipedia page for the uh, recipients of all Medals of Freedom, uh, she is the very first person listed uh, with, with her last name and, and President Kennedy's picks that they had. She sang at his inauguration. So uh, it's too bad that he wasn't alive to be able to award the, the medal himself. But uh, absolutely, she deserves to be on the top of that list. Also, great job picking uh, somebody uh, to kind of honor during Black History Month, because last week when I had Trump's picks open, I, uh, <laughs> I did not feel that that was, that was the way to go. Um, I, obviously, we already talked about Tiger Woods, but it was just like a thing where I, I was like, I cannot uh, link these two yeah. things together. I, I love that, uh, that, you know, first Trump pick, you were like, oh, I'm going for this. <laughs> I'm doing this. Okay, when we come back, our medals of the week. And we are back with our medals of the week. This is our segment where we honor somebody uh, who maybe this week has come into the news and has earned a medal of freedom uh, for their whole life. And then sometimes it's a person, idea, or thing that just has dominated the cultural conversation. And if we got to be president for a day, we would bestow a medal upon. Um, my medal of the week is a uh, long time coming. Um, and you'll see why. Um, it's to Tony Kushner, uh, the Tony Award winner, uh, who is behind the incredible Angel in America. Um, he is a frequent collaborator. Wrote Lincoln. I'm sorry? He wrote the Lincoln film. Oh, as I was well. just going to say he is a frequent collaborator of Steven Spielberg and worked with him on Munich, yeah. Lincoln, and West Side Story. Um, and this is what I have been angling to kind of talk about. West Side Story is something that um, we have discussed off mic multiple times, um, and I wanted to endorse it on the podcast. But I had a little bit of a hard time finding a way in because anyone who you would associate with. West Side Story, um, I'm saying uh, Chita Rivera, who originated the role of Anita on Broadway, Steven Spielberg, Steven Sondheim, and even the uh, luminous Rita Moreno have all already gotten Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, Rivera, Spielberg, and Sondheim under Obama, and Moreno under George W. Bush. Uh, But this week, it was announced that when 
the movie was coming together. Um, Steven Spielberg was uh, collaborating with uh, the late, great Steven Sondheim. And they had originally cut I Feel Pretty from their version of the movie. And the person who stepped in to these two incredible, successful creative forces and told them, no, you're wrong, it needs to be in the movie, was Tony Kushner. Um, I will not spoil it. I feel like um, it's very, very, very much worth checking out. And I think, um, ironically enough, it's coming to Disney+. Plus um, uh, Next month, I believe, uh, March 2nd. Uh, so I won't go too much into the specifics, but... Um, Tony Kushner does kind of rearrange some of the placement of some of the songs and the use of I feel pretty in this new version is very, very impactful. And it's also a favorite of mine from the musical. So to me, the idea that Tony Kushner was like, listen, I understand you guys want to make this. I understand you have this vision, but you don't see the whole thing. You need this number. So I'm very happy to award my muddle to Tony Kushner and to tell everybody that a week from now or whatever it is when uh, March 2nd hits, that you should definitely stream West Side Story. There are certain things and people who we will not name by name, but uh, that you need to kind of overlook. But overall, it's really, really perfect. The thing that upsets me the most about West Side Story, and we get this a lot, is I would rather there be a film that is an outright disaster that you could kind of hate watch and be like, all right, well, it was a failed experiment, but we can at least have fun with it. With West Side Story, it's so close. It's so close to being a classic, Brian. It is. It's like the opposite of um, Murder on the Nile, which I feel like is just bad, <laughs> like has like disaster <laughs> upon disaster stacked upon it. That to me, like, yes, I saw video footage of people going to see Murder on the Nile, um, or Death on the Nile, um, at midnight, and when Gal Gadot does the, and enough champagne to fill the Nile. <laughs> like, people were, like, screaming. Like, when, like, you know, um, Captain America, like, picked up Thor's hammer in an Avenger movie. Like, I mean, people were, like, that shrieking level. in the audience. Yeah. And to me, like, yeah. I was like, I'm so happy that communal theater going is back so that <laughs> people can have that moment. But I agree with you. Like, that's a movie that I would watch because I feel like it must be such an unmitigated disaster. West Side Story is so good. And I remember when I saw it in theaters, I came out and I ran into a friend of mine and they were like, what did you see? And I was like, oh, I saw West Side Story. And they were like, oh, and I was like, I know, I never thought I would cry about the death of Ansel Elgort, but alas, <laughs> Steven Spielberg is that good. I uh, almost want a 60-minute or maybe even a 50-minute edit of that film with a couple of key scenes cut out. Because just a couple of those scenes, especially when I'm thinking of the America set piece with the new choreography and Spielberg behind the lens, it's just... It jumps. Those scenes just sing. I mean, every time um, you think that it's hit its like crescendo, it like more people get involved, more color gets involved. The, the, the shot somehow gets wider, and like now the whole street is taking up with dancers. Um, yeah, it's it's breathtaking. My mother and I watched it over Christmas, and we went to the theater. I think there were a total of four people in the entire theater, which was a sign of how that did business-wise. But I remember the first scene when Maria is introduced in the apartment, and they were just having a standard dialogue scene, but 
with the lighting and the way that the colors were set up and everything like that, the way that Spielberg could frame a shot, I turned to my mom in a scene that, again, was not showy at all. It was not during a musical piece or anything like that. And I just said, look at how he does that. I mean, you know, I'd never heard of this um, Steven Spielberg, but I think he has a bright future. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if he'll be able to make another movie, but maybe he could move to Broadway. If he has a bright future, that, that's Steve Spielberg. <laughs> all the best to him. Uh, Clay, who yes. is your pick this week? It's been a while since I've had a true Limbaugh pick as opposed to putting a spotlight on something that uh, deserves credit. Mine is something I want to kind of frame with a general attitude of the United States, which is the article on Phil Mickelson talking about the Saudi government. Uh, For those who don't follow sports, uh, the Saudi Arabian government, which is a brutal regime that uh, has pretty much admitted to sanction killings uh, with journalists and uh, gay people, and you run the gamut, uh, very misogynist as well in terms of their laws, that because they are an oil-rich country that they have proposed forming their own golf league, uh, to their credit, the majority of professional golfers out there completely recoiled at the idea of uh, playing for a league sponsored by the Saudi Arabian uh, prince and the kingdom that they they operate under. Uh, Except for one who is Phil Mickelson. Uh, About eight months ago, there was a lot of goodwill toward him. In his 50s, he was the oldest player ever to win a major PGA championship when uh, he won uh, the PGA championship. And... uh, really had a lot of goodwill his way. Uh, I know from from just growing up in that community that he is known to be uh, a bit of an asshole, but people were willing to to look at him as a, a note of inspiration. But he was giving an interview and talked about working with the Saudis and said, quote, the Saudis are scary motherfuckers to get involved with. They killed Washington Post reporter Jamal Khashoggi, have a horrible record on human rights, and they've executed people over there for being gay. Knowing all of this, why would I even consider it? Because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reshape how golf operates. So he's saying here they are awful people who will kill people for being gay and for reporting truths, but because I have an opportunity to make more money, I am willing to overlook it. I will give him credit for being honest about his beliefs. Yeah, I, that is rare. There are a lot of people who would have danced around that and been like, oh, well, we don't know. Or, you know, I can't comment on that. Like, you know, they could have taken the uh, movie star in a Woody Allen route to this where it's like, oh, well, what do we mm-hmm. all know? No one knows anything. Uh, to me, the idea that he so full-throatedly was like, well, they're all, you know, not great, but the money's good. And uh, I don't want to back up too much on this, but I've been reading more and more just about how that libertarian belief in the United States is a very strong aspect of, of voters out there. And is that something that that we should be more honest about. Uh, maybe it is that there are people out there that say, I don't give a shit if, you know, people are killed or assaulted or arrested uh, for exercising their rights. If there's money for me to make in it, I will look the other way. 
I think that's a very dangerous thing, but is that a thing in the United States now? I think that uh, I will give Phil Mickelson credit, like Brian said, that it definitely has started a conversation about that. Uh, He, for his uh, statements that he made, a lot of his sponsors have already dropped him. And so I think that through this entire exercise, he thankfully is going to be losing money than making money through all of this. And it sounds like because of this, this entire Saudi golf league is completely dead in the water at this point because, uh, again, he outlined some very basic beliefs about what this is and and really shows how abhorrent dealing with that Saudi government is. So my Limbaugh goes to golfer Phil Mickelson. I'm not going to call him brave, but I am going to call him forthright. So just to review, the Saudi government kills gay people journalists and golf leagues. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> and you know what? Let's let's hope that people keep uh reminding us of of how awful they are because uh the last thing that I want is for uh, some type of legitimate thing to take place with them where they can cover up behind the cloak of celebrity and and sports to to pave over their awful human rights record and the crimes that they've committed. Well, this was a very, very informative and eye-opening. And you got to call somebody an asshole on record. Um, So what a great episode. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Hopefully Christine will be back with us next week, assuming the player that she is sponsoring in Squid Game dies. Um, If not, uh, it'll be a few more weeks, I guess. Um, But yeah, have a good week, everybody. Yeah, what if she shows up next week just covered in blood? (laughs) She still has her, like, bejeweled mask on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Muffles her voice. Oh, we miss you, Christine. Follow us <laughs> at Limbaugh Podcast next week with Christine. Maybe. See you then. Bye. Uh-huh.